Human Matters. I'm Deborah Stone with a podcast exploring society, culture, and the new insights that research brings into how we understand what it is to be human. We're coming to you from the studios of the Australian Catholic University, a place that recognises the value of humanities study. If I ask you to think of socially progressive organisations that agitated for women's rights, it's a fair bet you won't imagine a group of faithful churchgoers modestly dressed or conscientiously teetotal. But in the late 1800s and early 20th century, great social strides were made by groups such as the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the Young Women's Christian Association and the Mothers Union. Christian women's groups campaigned for sex education and some wanted easier access to divorce and birth control. They were concerned with the vulnerabilities of young working women and of abused wives. They were practical, socially aware, and in many ways, highly political. Dr. Ellen Warren is a historian at ACU who has written a book about these groups entitled Agitate, Educate, Organise, Legislate, Protestant Women's Social Action in Post-Suffrage Australia. She's our guest today on Human Matters. Welcome to the podcast, Ellen. Thanks, Deborah. Who were the women who set up these Christian women's organisations? Well, they were women in the 19th century who felt that women's influence was vital to society, the good of society, and that men themselves were not doing enough as politicians or leaders or shapers of society to make sure that society was improving and was good for women and children. And they started up organisations in Australia at the, in the late 19th century. Um, and these were all international women's organisations. And they drew strength from the fact that the hand that, cro- the hand that rocked the cradle ruled the world. And the idea that women could actually shape society without necessarily being leaders themselves in parliament or so forth. One reason for this was that they actually couldn't stand for parliament. They were not yet voting. So they set about trying to change society in ways that would allow their influence to be felt. And one of those things was to campaign for the vote. And so they were very instrumental in trying to get the vote both to help women's influence and to help the world in ways they thought men were ignoring. And they felt that women could make a contribution that was different from the contribution that men made? Yes, that's right. They felt that uh, women would have a kind of moral suasion and a, a moral voice that would not be as corrupted as men would be. So men might have business in- interests and those might actually sway the way they voted or represented things in Parliament, whereas women would were seen to stand apart from that and to be able to speak for society in a way that men couldn't. It's really a different idea of women's position from the equality kind of feminism that followed. Yes. Uh, a lot of it is. So a lot of it is in a language now that we don't necessarily see as equal rights. Uh, they did think that it was a powerful argument that women might have a moral view of the world. Um, It sort of spoke a 19th century language that doesn't speak to us now, I suppose. Uh, But when you break down what they were talking about, they were talking about things that 
we do recognise today. So they, the Women's Christian Temperance Union were keen to ban alcohol, but this was partly because they saw domestic violence linked to alcohol, uh, to poverty linked to alcohol, because men might go and spend their whole paycheck one night in the pub and the, the family would then be in, in poverty. And these sorts of things, when we rename them, are actually quite modern and continuing topics. Uh, but they, in 19th century language, it can sound a bit dated to us. What kind of language were they using? Uh, well, for instance, the Women's Christian Temperance Union in the 1880s wanted a Married Women's Protection Act. And that to us does not necessarily say that it's about domestic violence, but they were really worried about women who were experiencing violence in the home or neglect were emotional or financial abuse as well. So they wanted to bring in some safeguards for married women. And and now we would not necessarily talk about domestic violence in that way, but we see it still as a multi-pronged way that women could suffer. And do you think that they were important in that first stage of awareness that if we hadn't had them, we perhaps wouldn't have got to where we are today? Yes. Yeah, they were definitely very important agitators. And sometimes they themselves did not achieve what they wanted to do. So Australia didn't become completely dry. We didn't get rid of alcohol. But certain areas went dry so that you can drive around Melbourne today and still see areas where there were dry suburbs and there's very few pubs or restaurants in those areas. Um, but they also would move on. So if they hit an obstacle that they felt they couldn't fix immediately with legislation, they might move to a different strategy, which might be education. So one example of this was that they were very outraged that the age of consent for a girl to have sex was as low as 12. And they tried and tried to get that changed in Parliament and would it would get knocked back for various reasons. And they decided in the 19th century that if they couldn't protect their daughters through legislation, they would have to protect them by education. And so they were very early founders of sex education in Australia. And again, um, this was not necessarily about enjoying sex or what your options were. It was rather more of a, a moral warning to people about what they needed to look out for and, and how to protect themselves. And one of the things they had to do uh, to achieve this was to decide how a message like that could be broadcast to a Victorian population that was very uh, tentative or worried about talking about sex. And they decided that the best way to do this was for women to educate women and for particularly for mothers to educate daughters. And so when we're talking about having to find a new language or a language that resonated, they did have to find a language that, that mothers felt they could talk to their daughters in when talking about the forbidden topic of sex. And they were very good at tapping into what was acceptable um, and finding new ways to put forward ideas. So they purposefully tried to make this a positive social education campaign. They didn't just get the local 
priest to get up and do a hellfire and damnation talk. They tried to explain sex in terms of the natural world and not to scare people away about it, but to explain from childhood about, and this is where we get the birds and bees from, how flowers procreate and bees spread pollen and so forth, and then move up to try and um, have older children understand how this might translate to humans and and to see this within a sort of moral or behavioural compass. I know you've got some absolutely beautiful books that are these early birds and the bees literature, um, which are quite beautiful and have a very warm and peaceful feeling about them. But they're also um, quite obscure. One wonders whether after reading about the bees and the flowers, one would have been any the wiser about what was going to happen on the wedding night. Yes, that's right. I think um, some of the books are aimed at very young children and not necessarily thinking about the wedding night. But one of them, The Cradle Ship, definitely um, talks about old-fashioned people who don't want children to know where they come from and they will tell them that storks drop them in the garden and so forth. But the mother in that story wanted the children to know about procreation, so she takes them in a magic ship to babyland and there shows them all wonderful things about how pine trees and fish and all sorts of things procreate. Um, And there's beautiful pictures in it. But when it comes to talking about humans, it talks about the baby growing in a little warm purse or something near the mother's heart. So it's, it is a bit obscure. And nevertheless, the mother does take them to a, a bad part of babyland as well, where the flowers and birds and so forth have been infected. And she then gives them a stern talking to using her mother power as to how this should never have come about and how the adults should be protecting the children. And, yeah, so I'm, I'm very interested in that book, which is a picture book, so it's clearly for young children, that the message is there for the adult reading the story, I think, to the child, that the parents have to step up into this important public education Oh, so it's a bit like The Simpsons. It has the message for the child, but it also has the message for the adults so that you bring people together around the topic. Mm. And validate the mothers who might be talking about this sort of thing. Yeah. Right. Now, of course, this is coming in many cases out of a church or religious group. Um, What difference did that make? I think it made a big difference in that when they said that they could be a moral voice for society, Christianity was very dominant and this was something that validated them. So they were speaking up as Christian women, so as a dominant cultural group in Australian society. They were connected with other Christian women around the world, so that had a very strong reinforcing power to their organisations. But it did also give them a role in Christian communities that might otherwise have been hampered. So uh, although there were some denominations where women would take leadership in terms of preaching and so forth, it was pretty rare. And a lot of women in churches were assigned roles such as the flower roster 
maybe the reading roster, the cleaning roster. Um, and that did not really use women's talents. And in an era before women were mainly, or middle class women anyway, were mainly working, there were lots of women who had talents, highly intelligent, who didn't feel that arranging the flowers once a month was using their talents sufficiently. And and so they could both run their own organisations and be quite active in society, um, but still couch themselves as very good Christian women who were only speaking out, not to further their own selves, but to for the benefit of society. So the Christian thing did work in there to um, both validate them and give them a little space to work in. So apart from the social purposes, there was possibly a degree of autonomy and um, self um direction that mm. they were able to give themselves through running these groups. Yes, I think so. And these, they were massively um, quick to grow. And there are some letters to the newspaper where some male members of the congregations said that it was taking them away from their important work of the flower rusters and so forth, and women should be redirected back into those kinds of things. Um, and those letters said, this will never last. This is a phenomenon. But in fact, they did last and they, they grew. And there was many different roles that people could take on in these organisations. So they were not, for instance, confined to fundraising or one particular campaign. So the Women's Christian Temperance Union certainly did campaign against alcohol, but they had a do-everything platform. That meant they were busy campaigning for the vote at the same time as they were campaigning for the elimination of alcohol. They were monitoring opium use in their communities. They had press departments where they were feeding information out to the media and collecting stories in the media that was important for them. Um, they visited factories and talked to young women in factories. Uh, the Young Women's Christian Association did many of those sorts of things, but then also set up practical places where people could go to eat their lunch in between fa their factory shifts or after working in a factory to go and uh, develop themselves in, in a gym or doing classes after work. So there, there was a huge number of roles that, that women could take on. And if those didn't satisfy them, they could also go to international conferences or training schools overseas um, or go and work in Japan or another country. So the international connections of the organisations meant that once you joined one of these groups, you could in fact do a lot of different things. And this partly explains their popularity, I think. Even if not every member did those things, they joined with the knowledge that they possibly could. Was there conflict within the organisations about which issues to concentrate on? Yes, there could be. Uh, the three organisations were not all equally progressive. The Mothers' Union was probably the most conservative of the three. It was attached to the Anglican Church and each group was under the uh, remit of the local Anglican vicar. So they were much more confined to Anglican-type issues. 
Um, and they were more inclined to be very cautious about throwing themselves out politically into the public sphere. So when you looked at their uh, minute books, they would often say, the time is not quite right for this campaign, and they would put it off. Uh, the other two, the Women's Christian Temperance Union and the Young Women's Christian Association, were much more um, keen to get out there and, and agitate, educate, seek legislation, that sort of thing. And But the Young Women's Christian Association, which prided itself on its massive international coverage, um, did occasionally have problems with that. So during the Second World War, for instance, or in the lead up to the Second World War, one of their largest arms was Germany, Austria. So they had uh, members in Germany and Austria, which were now Nazi-controlled, and and many other members in America, England, Australia, New Zealand, so forth, that were clearly not and, and were appalled at what was happening in under the Nazis and were actually trying to uh, fight against some of those things or, or assist people getting out of those areas. So um, it became quite tense for a while there as to how political women could really be, especially in Europe, and how political they wanted to be because on the one hand you had a rise of fascist and Nazi-type forces, on the other hand communist forces. They were worried about both of them and they would rather see themselves as totally non-political, whereas the women in the kind of Anglo-American, Australian, New Zealand kind of contingent saw it as an important time to be speaking up. and uh, But they were safer themselves in their own countries. Um, so there was a bit of tension between those two different sectors of the Young Women's Christian Association as to women and politics at that time. And how did it resolve? It resolved, well, eventually uh, the Nazis banned organisations and the YWCA could only function as a Bible study group uh, during the war. And, and at certain times groups did split off. At another point, uh, when the Young Women's Christian Association decided that they would accept any Christian girls, not just Protestants, that was too much for some countries and they split off at that point uh, rather than upset their Protestant members. So generally the groups did stick together but occasionally there were tensions where there would be schisms and so forth, yeah. And looking back, what do you think the, the greatest achievements of the groups were? I think the greatest achievements were actually putting women out into the public sphere in a way that they controlled and that was very successful um, so that it didn't seem a freak thing that women would speak out or represent the needs of women. They didn't have to be elected as members of parliament to be able to, to do that. They were totally in control of how much they were doing in the public sphere and what they were doing for women. If they had only limited themselves to formal politics, they would have achieved very little because, as we know, the women who did stand for politics were not highly successful for a long time. There weren't huge numbers of women in Parliament for a long time. And indeed, we are still having issues around that today. <laughs> we are. Um, so they were able to um, produce role models and roles for women 
quite quickly. They they funded themselves, so they weren't just charities that required the public to give them money. They connected women here with women overseas so that when they were fobbed off by local people or told to get back in their box or that they were asking too much, they could say, but we're not because this has already become law in Canada, Finland. You know, They could reel off everywhere. Where, and they keenly followed the politics and the the situation for women around the world. So that was something that meant that they got quite a lot of, of social respect and as did their organisational capability as well. So you see at the times of the war, the Young Women's Christian Association would be drawn in through the war, the war forces to help run aspects of sleeping arrangements or munitions factories or things like that because they're already quite a well-oiled machine in that way. So why did their influence wane? It comes down, I think, to how comfortable the women were themselves with pushing things politically. And I felt that there was a, a turning point when people felt that progressive views might be seen as communist. Um, and it was harder to put forward something that might really have helped women, such as birth control, uh, because the communists were out um, loudly saying that women should have free birth control and indeed free abortion on demand. And in, say, the 1930s, that was still shocking. So if women said that they thought women should have greater knowledge of birth control, um, it was all too easy for their opponents to say, are you communist? Are you anti-family? Are you seeking the destruction of the family? And and these were generally pretty middle class, um, you know, reasonably middle of the road people. So they didn't want to push the most extreme agenda. And you can see people pulling back at that stage. And of course, during the wars, um, they were pretty much pro whatever country they were in. So in between the wars, they'd be highly internationalist. And then during the wars, they would um, pull back to a more conservative position. And <clears throat> then after World War II, which is another area of study, I guess, um, the whole situation for women changes as well, as does women's education and many other things. So but I, I see it as that fine line between being publicly active with an aim to improve things through a kind of broad spectrum politics and the fear of actually being sucked into a kind of more dangerous politics. Yeah. So they still, the, the, all three organisations still exist. And the YWCA in particular has always continued to promote the needs of young women. So they didn't dwindle in that respect, but um, the, the kind of political engagement that I was interested in yeah, certainly pulls back into a, a different mode. And of course, ultimately, feminism as we know it comes along mm -hmm. and these issues 
become part of broader public discourse, mm. do you think that these women would be um, pleased with where we've got to or do you think it would have been quite shocking to them today if they were transported into the present era? Hmm. Interesting question. Um, I think the organisations always had a, a broad spectrum of membership, um, especially the Young Women's Christian Association and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. They did have very progressive, forward-thinking women in their midst, as well as more conservative people. But um, some of those progressive people would be very pleased with how much, how many opportunities have opened up for women. Um, but they would still be critical, I think, of the hurdles that women face in politics and and that sort of thing. Um, so. I think they would still be out there campaigning now if they were in the organisations today. Well, it's wonderful to know that there were these women and to recognise um, the way they set up for the work that has happened and the work that continues to happen um, to improve women's lives. Um, Dr Ellen Wan, thank you very much for being part of Human Matters today. That's it from us. Thanks to the ACU media production team um, and particularly to Trey Karuna-Rathna who produced this podcast. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to review and share it so other people can find it. I'm Deborah Stone and you've been listening to Human Matters.